Welcome back to Atlanta Diaries. I'm your host Enma Popley. Thank you for joining me. In Atlanta Diaries, we celebrate unique and inspiring stories of breakthrough women to help future generations create their own. If you want to know more about Atlanta or listen to more episodes, you can visit my website www.enmapopley.com. You can also share feedback or suggestions there. My guest today is Abha Narayan Lamba. Abha is a practicing conservation architect. Among many laurels, her firm was awarded the Architectural Digest Architect of the Year in 2019 and has been included in the AD100 Architects list. Abha's practice includes the restoration of 15th century temples in Ladakh and Hampi, mosques, historic palaces and caravansarais in Rajasthan, Madhya Pradesh and Punjab. and the mogul gardens in kashmir abha started a practice when most did not understand the word conservation and she created her own rule book whether that meant taking her toddler for meetings or climbing a 180 feet scaffolding to demonstrate her opinion i'm really excited to share my childhood buddy's inspiring and trailblazing journey hi abha welcome to the show thank you wonderful to be here this is super exciting and for the benefit of the listeners abha and i go back 41 years wow that's a long long time yes abha and i was calculating it's been 41 years and it took me back to times when you and i were cycling together and hanging out in home together and sometimes doing homework together so just brought back such beautiful childhood memories school days and it was just lovely and nostalgic and everything at the same time abha any memories come to your mind when i'm narrating all these things the most vivid memory i have is of a very embarrassing uh, episode in our lives when we began i think we were about 12 or 13 and we decided to wax our legs and i remember we were at your house one afternoon and we bought this hot wax and <laughs> I took a hot wax strip and yanked it off your leg, and we managed one strip of hairless leg. And you let out such a loud scream that your parents were napping in the in the next room, and they came rushing out to know what happened. And then you refused to wax your other leg because you thought it was just too painful. <laughs> Why was I sure, Abba? Yes. That is the only memory which is going to come to your mind, and. <laughs> that's the most vivid <laughs> and to me actually what brings a smile to my face is the fact that you've always pushed me out of my comfort zone and whether this means pushing me to have a glass of cold coffee after the so called fast which we all keep you know once a year and just drink it just don't care about anything so abha this is our friendship you know where we push each other and we motivate each other and that's that's what makes it special and on this note i have to say that it was hard to bring you on this podcast when i think about it to me it almost feels like abha at a personal level and abha at a professional level are really two different people in a sense yes i think you're right because i've never figured that out but i think on a personal level i've been very chilled to the best of my understanding and at a professional level i've always pushed myself so maybe that's a 
two facets to my personality and maybe that's it because I don't think on a personal level I've ever been very competitive or anything of that but on a professional level I've always pushed myself to do my very best even on an academic level in school but as a friend or as a family person it was very different so I probably need to go to see a psychiatrist to figure that reason but <laughs> but that's all I can think of you always hesitated to talk about work. I would say I always remember Abha as the humble and the modest Abha who will never ever showcase or talk about her work. Like I spent four hours researching you, Abha. Oh my God. Yes, I did. And I was, as always, admiring all the work you've done. I've always taken pride in telling the world this friend of mine, a conservation architect, UNESCO awards 10 times over. So. You're not going to stop me from saying this this time. Like, otherwise you always change the topic and shut 11. me up. We won our 11th this year. Awesome. Many, many, many congratulations. I did read about this, but my bad. Abha, why don't we start from here? Did you ever think that Abha, 40 years back, is going to reach all this? And share with me, how did your early years shape that journey? I never knew I'd become an architect 40 years ago. But I always knew 40 years ago that I was going to be a career woman. And I always knew that I would give my best to my work. One of my earliest memories of school are when I stood first in class one. And in class two, I came second by one mark. And I was sort of so agitated about it. So I know that this was always important. Academic excellence or professional excellence was always important to me. But the rest of my life has just been happenstance in a sense. I mean, it's it's never been a planned journey. I think my father wanted me to become a diplomat and a civil servant. And uh, he pushed me very hard to join the government services. And I landed up studying architecture almost by default because he pushed me towards studying sciences and I pushed back and I picked up technical drawing as a subject to avoid going into the medicine and biology trap. And it just took me to architecture. And I, I loved history always. And with architecture, I started taking electives that had more to do with history. And, and that led me to conservation. So it's not been a planned journey. But yes, I do know for sure even when I was a little girl, that I wanted to be an author. I managed writing a couple of books and I wanted to be known for my work. That I knew as a little girl. See, that's another facet of your life, which I am now discovering. Like I always knew uncle, you know, inspired you and motivated you, but I did not realize that he pushed you away from architecture. Yes, because I think since he was in the civil services, he always thought that I would follow his career path and, and join government. And perhaps he, he wanted me to do that. I would have liked to do that too. But somewhere along the way, probably my creative side to me became more important, which I didn't realize till, till I was you know in high school. So Abba, at class one, to realize that you want to be a career woman, I also read that your grandmom was into floriculture. So is it the family background or what motivated you or inspired you to know at such an early age that you're going to be a career woman and of that level? I don't know. It's my mother was a homemaker and 
I never saw my grandmother on either side, both my paternal and maternal grandmom that, you know, passed on before I was born. I was one of two daughters and my father always sort of took me as perhaps would have had it been a son. If I wanted to dance, he would encourage me. And I think my, both my parents just encouraged me to do whatever, you know, I enjoyed or was best at. And I just think it led from there. So what number are you at on your project? I've never counted. I honestly can't tell you. <laughs> Maybe you've done research and you could give me the figure. You know, I've just enjoyed every project and I, I do. And again, I think the day I stop enjoying my work, I probably hang up my boots. But for me, a lot of times I would, if I'm working on a project like I am right now on uh, the Mughal Gardens in Kashmir, or if I worked on Ajanta Caves, or we were currently working on uh, the UNESCO nomination dossier for Sarnath, where Buddha uh, gave his first sermon. I mean, these are the kind of places, if I was on vacation, I would pay to go to these places. And I'm fortunate that my work takes me there. So very often, my boundaries between my work and my my passion are really blurred. And I enjoy my work so much that it doesn't seem like work. And I think that's also been a problem that work-life balance really doesn't happen in my life because I think work has, is something that it's always excited me. I mean, if I'm in the middle of researching a project, I'd be happy working on that till 3 a.m., just reading something. And I would enjoy it as much as I would if I were reading you know, an interesting, gripping book. So it's fun. Actually, that's a beautiful perspective, Abba. And at a crazy level, it so resonates with me. Like ever since I started Atlanta Diaries and I'm only researching your work on work of every other breakthrough woman. And oh my God, I can spend like hours together. Like it's just so, when you start doing something, like you just fall in love with it. And I think it's just amazing if you can do that. Abba, I know it's going to be a difficult question, but I do want to still double click on, okay, we don't know the count and I can totally understand that because there's just so much of body of work, but which is your most favorite project till date? I just think I've been fortunate. I've enjoyed working on so many different projects and each one of them has taught me things. I mean, if I was working in Ladakh for three years on restoring a 15th century temple in a very remote village called Basco, Believe me, it wasn't fun when it was happening because I was so nervous that if something went wrong, it was a, a mud structure and it was 500 years old. And if there was one shower of rain when we had opened up the mud terracing, we could have been in a soup. So when you're working on a project, it's very tense sometimes and very exciting as well. But we were working in a high altitude, 11,000 feet, no running water, dry loose, no flush, no cell phone, barely any electricity. Those relays of being at site, it was so cold. Uh, I went, you know, without a bath for a week straight. So it's, it's not necessarily great fun when a project is happening. But when you look back and the joy it gives you, a completed project, when you finally go through the grind and you, you know, you put back a building that is a joy. It's like giving birth. It's almost like that. So every project really is like that. It's 
there are labor pains, but it's so joyful to see a completed project that's to your satisfaction. It's worth everything. And I think that's the reason I've never been able to pick which project is my favorite. Each one of them, I've learned so much from projects, from sites, from people I've worked with. And that's that's a journey I can't really measure. I read about the Ladakh project, no signal, like you're saying, and electricity, minus 40 degrees. My God, that that just sounds scary. But again, when I was reading about it, I'm like, now I know when Abba says, you know, let's go to Ladakh and go and spend time in the palace. I'm going to take that offer on very soon. Something I'm going to talk about offline. Okay, let's talk about the Opera House project. Eight years to see it through patiently. Uh, how did you make that happen? Can you take us through maybe just the Opera House project from start to end in a, I know, in a very brief manner? Like, how did you get it on? How did you keep yourself and your team going? So the Opera House was the only surviving Opera House in India. Uh, when it was built 100 years ago, it was considered the finest opera east of the Suez. And then with the coming of cinema, it became a cinema hall. By the 1980s, when VCRs and multiplexes began their journey, nobody wanted to go to a single screen theater that had no air conditioning, and it became a relic. And finally, it was shut down. So it was locked up and forgotten for almost 25 years and the rains in Bombay, I mean there was leakages, structural dilapidation, till it came to a point when the government declared it unsafe. And that's when I came in, I was appointed by the most wonderful clients, the, the Maharaj Sahib of Gondal and his wife. They had just so much faith in me as, as clients, they just told me, we are handing this project to you and you decide what's to be done. But then the building was so, so dilapidated that my first challenge was to get a structural engineer on the project. And I went to every top structural engineer that I knew in Bombay and they all refused it. They said, it's too dangerous. Finally, I managed to get a structural engineer and we worked on it. There is for a building like this, very little funding especially since privately owned heritage in India gets barely no funding. We applied to the World Monuments Fund, but even they did not fund us because it was privately owned. And after a long struggle, we managed to get permissions. And it took us, yes, nine years. But at the end of it, when the building reopened and we could hear the sounds of opera perform once more after nearly 100 years, it's just transformed the cultural scene of the city of Mumbai. And there, that's when I say, you know, at that point, those eight years are worth it. And it's just so satisfying uh, to work on a project like this. So even then, you know, it's almost serendipity. We were working on, you know, trying to find out the original color palette, because when I walked into the opera house, it was completely decrepit, but the interior was an art deco interior. And it didn't make sense because the building predated the art deco period. So I knew that there must have been an older Baroque kind of a, a design of the interior. And out of the blue, I got a, a call from an Australian professor of drama who was researching on theater and he had found the original catalog that was printed in 1916 when the Opera House opened. And in that catalog, we managed to find black and white photographs which showed the side 
the balconies and then it was so much easier to just open out the side wings and we found the original structure of the wings again there was so much research because the black and white images weren't able to tell us the color palette and then we researched through a lot of old films and finally we found one hindi film from the 60s which had rajesh khanna and shashi kapoor and there was a the climax scene was shot at the opera house and that scene gave us so much information on the the colors uh, you know the details that were lost for so many years so you get a lot of clues it's almost like forensic uh, in a way forensic science because you get a, a building which had been shown off most of its its historic details and you look for clues and you build them back you build the scene of the crime in a in a sense so you you build back the original uh, design through sources through archival research uh, rummaging through history and that's so exciting when you when you put all the the pieces of the jigsaw together i can sense that excitement ab i want to backtrack a little bit because this is just so amazing tell me what really inspired you to get into conservation architect i mean we're talking about a time when one that was not a word in anybody's vocabulary two in india definitely was a male dominated field so what really got you into conservation architect i'm going to break that into two when you say that conservation or that architecture is a male dominated thing even today i mean i graduated from architecture school 30 years ago and then there were very few women studying architecture and fewer women still practicing but it's very sad that even after 30 years i still see more than half the number of students in architecture being women but when it comes to the field of practicing architects they're still miserably low in number so that is something that bothers me especially the fact that you know bright young girls who qualified as architects then somewhere along the way give up on on their their career or take you know alternate careers so coming back to that i think i can't ever say that being a woman i feel that i was discriminated against and i would like to just say that i'm an architect and it doesn't matter what gender and i believe that and if i'm confident in that i can't look at my being a woman as something that is a challenge then therefore i need to be treated differently no if i'm as good as an, another man i will do as well as another man and i've never wanted to use that as, as an excuse to myself oh, that's first they can be good architects bad architects brilliant architects and that's regardless of gender that's one and sometimes i think there's an almost an advantage in being a woman that your people don't have expectations there's no burden of expectation that you need to do brilliantly because you're almost written off that oh she's a woman she probably won't and that is actually for me liberating that nobody expected me or put the burden of expectation of me being good at my job and that's why i can take chances and i've always enjoyed being in that sense an outsider so i therefore don't feel that being a woman is a problem it's just we need to as women tell ourselves that there are no no glass ceilings in the day we truly believe it there are no glass ceilings now coming back to your second question of how i decided on conservation actually to be honest i didn't even know a field of conservation architecture i just wanted to be an architect 
And yes, I did take up an elective of conservation, the way I would have studied landscape as an elective subject. And I always wanted to work with Joseph Allen Stein. He was an American architect who moved to India very soon after Indian independence. And he was one of the most brilliant architects of contemporary modern India. And uh, I'd seen his building of the Ford Foundation and India International Center. While I was a student at SPA, I would, you know, like hope that he would just, uh, you know, he'd give me a, a job as an intern when I graduated. I applied to his office and got an interview. And I still remember it was, it was December of 92 when I went to him for an, an internship interview. I showed him my portfolio and very patiently he saw my work and he said, you seem to have an interest in urban issues and conservation, but here we only do architecture. And for me, it was like the god of architecture saying we only do architecture. And I was happy to, to be folding blueprints in his office for a, you know, a, a year if he gave me a chance. And I did intern with him and I got a great opportunity as a junior architect in his studio to work on site on the India Habitat Center, which was under construction at the point. But what I did was around that time, over the weekends, I've never been able to just sit idle. Delhi has so many beautiful historic medieval monuments. And every weekend I would either pack a picnic basket, take my dog along or, you know, grab a friend and make an expedition or a picnic out of it and go look for old tombs or medieval stepwells or you know historic structures tucked away in some corner of Delhi. I began writing a column in the Times of India called Forgotten Monuments and that became a, a fortnightly column where every fortnight I talk about you know one forgotten monument and for me that was just uh, the joy of, of writing and the joy of going looking for monuments and then one of those sort of columns did get the notice of uh, head of Department of Conservation at the School of Planning and Architecture. And one day at Stein's office, I got a call and the head of department said, you know, you're an SPA graduate and why don't you come back and, and do your master's in conservation? And, and I just landed up studying conservation. So it was very random, like every other, you know, choice or every other development in my life, a lot of random circumstances. And it's just led from one thing to another. I think it just all came together, Abba. That's beautiful. Abba, I want to double click on your first answer. I think that's one of the reasons why I really pushed you to have this conversation. The fact that you're unhappy with the numbers going down, right? Despite the fact that, you know, girls are taking on the degree, but they are giving up on it. So use this platform to talk about it. Or I'm sort of curious to know that what exactly have you done about it? Or how are you motivating or inspiring those young girls to not give up? Or what do you think is the reason for it? I know I'm not saying the numbers have gone down. I'm saying the numbers have not gone up. So if there were very few women led architectural firms 30 years ago, there are still very few women led architectural firms today. Maybe the number of workforce of women architects has increased but there in terms of architectural practices where women are leading are still way less than would be in an equal scenario and what bothers me also is a lot of very bright and very talented women architects who do graduate from architecture school don't continue in the field and 
that I think is perhaps because architecture is like any profession, it is challenging. There's a lot of travel involved, there are long hours, there's site work. So what I can do as a, a person who has an architectural practice is just try and make it easier for women to continue. So we have always had a lot of women in our firm right from the time that we set it up 25 years ago. But also that a lot of times when, you know, there's been issues of, you know, somebody who's had a baby, for example, we created uh, the infrastructure for her to bring the baby to uh, the studio and we set up a crash and uh, Kriti in my studio, she would bring her, her son when, uh, right from the time he was four months old to the studio. So uh, very often, I think we've got to, as architectural firms, just allow for more flexibility to facilitate that. But also as a community and as, as clients who are commissioning projects, for example, and I'm grateful to my clients for that, I was working on the head office of Deutsche Bank in 2004. And uh, this was a very big deal. It was a corporate office, my first major corporate project. And it's a gorgeous building of Tata Palace. And, and my daughter was three and a half years old. And I would bring her along to site when I would, you know, visit site. And all these others, business, corporate, the bankers were working at the uh, the bank with their suits and everything. They were very, very all right with it, with the architect who's restoring the building, coming to work with the little toddler. And, you know, if I'd be discussing things that did happily keep an eye out while she was running around. And I think that's something that's very encouraging when you're a woman practitioner. And if your clients, even if they are from a very structured uh, finance background, if they're all right with you bringing your kid to work because, you know, you have to, that does help. And so it might be considered unconventional, but when my daughter was little, she's accompanied me to sites in Hampi, to Ladakh. And I think that that's been good for me. And maybe it somewhere along the way inspired her to study architecture because now she's in architecture school and interning with, uh, with an architecture firm in Spain. Sometimes you don't have a choice. I was in Bombay. I did not have family. My husband was in a nine to five corporate job and couldn't take off very frequently so when I needed to work for me it was a choice of giving up on my career or being you know this crazy hippie architect who would bring her kid to work with her and I think that's how I sort of fumbled along both as a mother and as a young architect and that's why I, I feel that we all as a community and as a world even as business or professionals uh, should be a little more easy and all right with uh, professionals who might be very smart and intelligent, but need to do these somewhat unconventional things like bring their kids to work sometimes because they don't have the kind of child support or family support uh, to, to not do that. Abba, you've spoken about pushing the envelope on many circumstances. So talk to me more about such radical um, moves which Abha has done in this journey of 28 years. No, I, I, you know, I don't see those as radical. I think each one of us in our journeys are faced with choices. Very often there are choices that are foisted upon us because of societal 
norms that this is expected of you because you're a woman or this is expected of you because you're a wife or this is expected of you because you're a mother but honestly i mean there's no rule book the rules are made by society and it's for every generation to create their own rules their own paradigms and finally what you think is something that you can live with for me therefore it's uh, if i feel that i can do something and if i can try to do something and it's not conventional but it's something that i believe is right it's my north pole and i guess if we are the brave enough or crazy enough to do that the world does accept you for what you are i think the problem is most of us sometimes are more concerned about what others will think of us and how they will judge us even if the world doesn't judge us wrongly but then we are over cautious and as a result don't even take the chances in a way monitor our own actions way more than maybe even society or the world outside would judge us so we have a kind of a self self monitoring mechanism built in inside us that often stops us from doing things we love doing the best and if you truly believe in something you should do it and we all have one life we should try and make the best use of however ever many years we have on the planet and i think maybe that's another thing when you're when you're young and you have these friends and someone says oh we can you know i'm farmist and i can read the future uh, i was 18 years old and we were a bunch of friends and one of them claimed to be very good palmistry and read my hand and said oh you're going to die at 45 and i laughed it off but somewhere it stayed within me that if i have only 45 years let me do everything that i want to and i think i just tried to do the maximum i wanted to always write a book i i made sure that i'd written a book before that i made sure i ticked off most of my bucket list <laughs> just in case i i did <laughs> you know hit the bucket at 45 but in a way if we all think like that and what it does is if we all realize that the time we have on this planet is really precious we would try and do the most of it so yes we don't know our expiry date we don't know when it's going to end but if we are conscious of the fact that every minute every uh, moment in our lives matters I think we would try to do the best we can. So I think that's what I tell my, I always told my daughter when she was little that it doesn't matter whether you want to be a chef or a tailor or a firefighter just pick something that you love doing every day because you're going to be stuck with it every day so you you better love what you're working on and then try and give it the best you can. So that's it these are the only two rules. don't you hang up your bally shoes and wear a business suit just because that's what society expects of you abad this is beautiful let's shift gears a little bit you're completely passion driven you said that work and even travel goes hand in hand when i was doing research you know i felt that the projects are more about philosophy than about execution do you agree with this i would say yes they should be the soul of every project is important but at the end of the day if it's badly executed you could kill the very philosophy or the very soul so that a project also has to be equally well executed because if you're not able to carry that thread of an idea to its finalization because of badly executed work it does take away from from the core value of that project so both 
you know, the way you explain to your daughter Ambika, I'm sure you give the same perspective to your team. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. So I'm wondering, what's your recruitment strategy? Like, how have you built that team? One thing is I never wanted to have a very large practice where it becomes like a huge. I wanted to keep my practice a boutique firm where I don't have more than 20 architects. So the scale is large enough and small enough for me to actually enjoy the process rather than make it so large a team that uh, it becomes a kind of a uh, an assembly lined firm. That's something that I've, I've lived by. But having said that, the, the kind of people that we have on our team are very varied. Uh, but that's the advantage of having a team where you're not looking for people who are just like you. You're looking for people who have very different strengths. In fact, I was having this discussion with my associates just last week, and we are Indian, so we are crazy about cricket, that we need to be like a cricket team. Uh, you bring in the spin bowler when you need that, and you bring in the, the hard-hitting batsman when that's needed. So each member in this team can't do everything but some can do something beautifully and brilliantly. And those are the strengths that we need to pull in at different stages of a project or at different, uh, at different levels or different kinds of projects that we deal with. And that's uh, what really pulls it together are two things. One is that your team is equally motivated and as passionate about their work. They need to be excited about the project. And the second thing is that there needs to be a certain basic sense of sincerity and honesty to, to your craft or to your profession. So that level of integrity is important. Then there could be somebody who's absolutely brilliant and there could be somebody who makes up for the lack of brilliance by just sheer hard work and sincerity, which is fine with me. As long as we know at different points what the strength of each individual in that team is. I think that's the part, you know, which you said that the bringing the passion and the integrity in the whole thing. So when I talk about the recruitment strategy, I meant that how do you make sure that everybody who are bringing in is going to be able to bring in the same passion? Because the kind of time frames of the projects, eight years, seven years, three years are not short time frames. So how do you keep them motivated? Or is that something you talk about when you recruit people is something which I would love to talk about. So in a way, I think people who want quick returns and are driven more by money than by passion don't come to us in the first place. They go to the large corporate firms, architectural firms that are mass producing a lot of 25 million square foot office interiors where the, the kind of pay grades are different. Uh, when people come to my firm, because we are not a mainstream firm and we are very niche, are mostly the kinds who want that kind of experience. So that, in any case, in a way, sieves out the talent, so to speak, because they have different career goals, which might not be in other firms. And the second thing is that there's also this, over time, one has also just seen that people who get invested in a project then want to stay on and complete that project. And those who want to be here for a short while to sort of work on their for their CV or to just learn a little and then move on to another, do that too. So there's, I mean, there's no way you can hold somebody beyond what they want to work on. But it just happens that when people come, some stay on for a while and then move on. And some really do become part of the team for a longer period. And I mean, I'm 
Krishna Iyer and Kriti Garkin in my firm have been with me for 17, 18 years. There are more, you know, others who've also grown with us as a as a studio. But also, I think both have their advantages as well. Because even people who have stayed for a shorter while have contributed in their way to the building of uh, the body of work. Ava, in your career, you've worked with village councils, you've worked with royal families, you've worked with politicians, you've worked with, you know, people in the government. How different or similar were those interactions? Oh, very different. It's fortunate because I've worked with villagers in remote areas in Rajasthan, in Karnataka, in Jammu Kashmir, in Ladakh. And at the same time, I've had the privilege of having as my clients sometimes chief ministers of states and and royalty but in a way uh it's it's equally important that every stakeholder and every client uh you develop a certain level of trust you have to have mutual respect doesn't matter where they're coming from they need to trust and respect you as a professional and your choices and you need to trust and respect them as uh, you know as your clients whether they're they're multi-millionaires or they're they're villagers in a village community-led project that i think these are the two basic fundamental qualities in a good client architect relationship trust and respect any um, anecdotes or any you know examples anything which comes to your mind well so you've also got to gain their trust so I can give you two examples. I was barely 28 years old and we were working on the conservation of this gorgeous Victorian uh, Gothic building of the Bombay High Court, which is now on part of uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. And at 180 feet on the turret was this limestone statue of justice and mercy, which had which required conservation. Uh, the public works department engineers of the government were working on it. And I suggested something else. And I said, let's not do a, a sandblasting and a cement grouting and let's use more uh, conservation friendly materials. Let's do a paper poultice followed by using uh, lime as a sacrificial render. So... For, for an engineer who'd been around for 20 years and who thought I was this young kid with, uh, you know, suggesting something else because conservation was very nascent way back in 1998 in India. People barely knew what conservation was and they would say, you're a conversation architect. I would say, no, I'm a conservation architect. So you actually had to tell them what it was. So this gentleman said, okay, he was he didn't want to dismiss me right away. But I think from his point of view, he wanted to see what, you know, I was made of. So we had a bamboo scaffold, which was uh, going up 180 feet, and it would sway in the breeze. We had no helmets, no hard hats, no safety gear. And you had to take off your shoes because the best way to, to climb a bamboo scaffold is barefoot because you get a better grasp on it. So he said, all right, uh, why don't you go up the scaffold and you apply your poultice yourself? So he wanted me to climb up to the 180 foot high scaffold and do that myself. And I did. And when I did, I had won his respect as a professional that I did know my job and I had the gumption to do it. And from then on, he accepted every one of my conservation suggestions. And not just that, all these were actually adopted by the entire public works department 
of Maharashtra and Mumbai for conservation. So it was a small battle. It was a small, in a state, almost like a, a rite of passage. But once I had done it, he had respect for me and he took me for a, a hardcore professional. So that is something where then there was mutual trust and mutual respect for each other's strengths. And in a very different case, in Ladakh, I, when I was working on uh, the Basco Temple, initially when I came in to Ladakh, I was sort of this import of this, you know, conservation architect who'd been flown in far out from Bombay and the rest of the, the workforce was all local Ladakhi and the village community. And they were not open to somebody who's come out from outside, who does not speak the language. And they were not really willing to, to accept me into that project and would ask me questions just to sort of suss me out. And that's when we were doing very basic investigation on the building and the construction itself. So I did a, a small test pit of, you know, just about a four inch deep pit into the, the roof terrace, which was mud terracing. And we found that right at the bottom of the terracing layers, there was birch bark. And I looked at the birch bark and I, I could identify it, fortunately, because my grandfather had been a forester in Kashmir. So I said, this is birch bark. And that was used as a waterproofing material. And then, because I was able to identify the material accurately, uh, the memes or the village elders took me under their wing. And after that, they taught me about how to use different local grasses and how to mix it with their different clays and which layer to add zasa and which layer to add markhala. And I learned so much from them. But initially, they were very circumspect about me. Uh, till they understood that I had some knowledge that I was bringing to the table. So very often that happens. I'm sure in your corporate world, it plays out uh, in different ways. But uh, initially, it's almost like dogs. You sniff each other out. And then when you build that trust, you proceed as, as professionals. It's all about mutual trust and give them the confidence that you know the job. I'm having said that, was there ever any self-doubt or any imposter syndrome which you went through for during any project or during any interaction with any particular client? No, I, I don't think I've ever had self-doubt. But yes, I've had crippling fear many often at different stages of the project, whether I'm good enough or I know enough to do this as well as it deserves to be. I remember for this for the Ladakh project, I would get nightmares. I would wake up, you know, with the sweat in the middle of the night uh, with the fear of the whole roof collapsing on me. And that fear made me study harder, research harder and get my act together. And I think that little bit of fear is important for every project. Sometimes it's good to wake up in the middle of the night worrying about a project because whenever I've done it, it has just driven me to get my act together, to refine my knowledge of that subject better. I'm not saying for every project, but for every project that I've been worried about, it has just egged me on to up my game. And that little bit of adrenaline or that little bit of fear is sometimes good for your project because you're not being overconfident and you you re-look re at your decisions or you review your strategy and just make it better. Abba, who is your go-to person? You know, it can get very worrying. So who do you speak with then? And this is what takes me to the Abba, who I believe 
sort of just internalizes everything, you know, and really doesn't talk too much about stuff. My go-to person, I would say it depends. Like you would be my personal go-to person, <laughs> for instance. Her work go-to person would sometimes be my own team. I would share my concern with them and get their perspective. When I was early on in my life, when I was just started, Bombay was a new city to me. Uh, Sharda Dwivedi was this amazing historian who took me under her wing. And whenever I was working on a project, I just call her. And she had so much knowledge about, you know, Victorian buildings and the architecture of Bombay that she would give me so much information and advice. So, you know, or when I worked on Buddhist monuments, uh, Ajanta, Sarnath, Bodhgaya, uh, Dr. Jamkhetkar, who's this amazing resource person on Buddhism has been my go-to person and guru. So a lot of times there are senior professionals or historians who've, who are very happy to share their knowledge with you. And those people I'm eternally grateful to. And also, as I told you, sometimes you can learn something so deep and so meaningful from the village community that you're working on, that you treasure that as much. Share with me any biggest joys as a leader or any anecdotes where you really felt that the team has accomplished together. I think my joy has been twofold when I've seen, again, architects who've grown in the firm and who I've seen them develop that confidence and acquire skills that they were initially not very confident of. So that's, you know, it's good to see that growth in an individual. In our firm, we've had twice, this is the second time, yes, that uh, two architects who've been working together in our firm as colleagues have fallen in love and decided to get married. And this has happened, this, you know, over a, a span of the last 10 years. And uh, I think we as a firm, and especially I would, you know, absolutely encourage that because I think if you are colleagues and you, you know, you develop a relationship, it probably shows that we are a good, good working environment and it's, uh, it's all good. And the other is also that Sometimes one has very important projects and I've come across certain other firms where for the really important clients, they don't let the junior architects or other architects speak up. But I've always tried to have even somebody who is junior in the firm, but who has worked on a project, get an opportunity to present their design or to present their point of view to a client, whether the client is the governor of Maharashtra or the chief minister of a state or, you know, a business leader. I feel it's important for, for a team to know it's not that only the principal is the one presenting a project, that people who've been involved in that project should be able to stand up and, and give their point of view. That's lovely. Abha, any setbacks in this journey and with the wisdom of hindsight, what were your learnings? See, setbacks, yes. I mean, a lot of times you work on a project and it never comes through or you work on a project and then midway you realize that there's been something that's happened behind the scenes and you've lost a project that you've really worked hard and it's heartbreaking at that point. But maybe in the long run, you know, you either let go or you feel that it was all for the good. But I think that also happens with every other architect and every other profession. You win some, you lose some. And sometimes also you think back and you realize that, uh, like, for example, there was a project that we were supposed to do, Crawford Market, for example. I was given that project in 2007. Then we lost it because uh, there was some 
there was a lot of politics about a builder wanting to build at a much higher FSI while I was trying to push for a low-rise development that would remain with the, the municipal corporation. It took us seven years to even get acknowledged that our design was better for the city and retained the ownership for the with the city and rather than with an individual builder. So it, it was a lot of effort, a lot of pain, a lot of uh, frustration for those seven years. And now it's 14 years and we're still working on the project. So sometimes it takes a very long time for a project to actually happen. But then if you think back, one sort of rationalizes and says, 14 years ago, had we worked on this project, maybe our firm would not have been mature enough to take it to that level. And maybe it's better that it came to us later and we have acquired the skill sets to be able to do a better job. But this requires so much of patience and no rush. And because it looks like the kind of stakeholders you're working for or the kind of field you're talking about. I think patience is like the uh, at the crux of everything. See, I'm not a patient person. I'll tell you something. When I speak very fast, I work very fast. I expect a lot of input from my team very fast. So I wouldn't be this really very Zen person who's very slow. I'm just the opposite. I'm a hyperactive kind of a person. But also, it's not a very good thing, but I also get deeply emotionally attached to a project or to a building. Sometimes for me, it's easier to understand a building than to understand humans. It's, it's rather strange. I can gauge them sometimes better. They're less... Uh, uh, unpredictable but I'm patient when I've invested in a project then I'm willing to go through the grind to make it happen even if it takes 15 years to happen then I am sort of I'm also as a person very dogged in my persuasion and in my perseverance so I'm not by nature a patient person but I also am very determined to take it through and I think that is sometimes just takes that long, especially when you're dealing with public projects. In the public realm, you're dealing with multiple stakeholders. Then very few projects happen really fast. I mean, some do. We, we worked on lighting up all of Jaipur's walled city. And we did that in nine months. And the stakeholders, there were more than 350 shopkeepers along the way that we had to convince and do it. And we managed everything and completed the project in nine months. But that's rare. In a lot of other cases, there are so many stakeholders, so many hiccups, bureaucratic hassles, uh, political changes of governance, changes of policy that affect uh, public projects far more. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting perspective. And that's the part which I wanted to double click on. And you sort of answered it very beautifully. I think what I'm hearing is that whole belief that you want to take on this project. And that's what keeps you going and, you know, makes you wait for it. How do you keep your team motivated? Do you get a pushback from the team sometimes on like you're crazy? Like, Oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> they love to use the word that I'm delusionally optimistic. I don't know if that's even grammatically correct, but I've heard that about me from my team a lot of times. But I think that's also infectious. And a lot of them, when they do get invested in a project, then they also equally feel, you know, motivated to carry it through. So it's uh, it's easier to tell someone else that, you know, you're you're too invested. But when it's your own project and you're, you are facing the highs and lows, and then when it does happen, and it does get completed, uh, that's the joy, I think. That's the, the creative satisfaction it gives you. 
Yeah, and that is what I meant when I said at a philosophical level, you know, that you need to bring those people who are equally passionate or equally vested in the project. And the ones who are not vested do move on. So it's okay. If if they're not equally vested and they choose to move on, that's also good. Absolutely. Ava, you were invited to the Joffrey Bhava Memorial Lecture in Sri Lanka. You've written a book. So what does success and achievement mean to you? That's what... When I've been working, my daughter said this to me the other day. She said, you barely know about what's happening in the architectural world. And you don't know who, you know, this firm, that's a Pritzker award winning firm and that name. But I think as a person, I've, I've just been so involved in the kind of works and the challenges that we're facing that honestly, I'm not looking at benchmarks to set or, or competing with other people. I'm just happy enjoying the ride. And for me, this has been a kind of, a personal journey almost more than a professional journey and I'm happy just doing what I'm doing I mean how would you even benchmark success I mean how many million turnover no it doesn't matter to me for me benchmark of a success is project well done and then you take on another exciting project and a benchmark of success is to get an exciting project and then to complete it well that would be for me a benchmark and for me, even that completion, yes, it really is encouraging if you win, let's say, an, a UNESCO Asia Pacific Award, and that sort of validates your hard work. But even without it, there are projects which we haven't got any awards for. But when you walk into the project, I mean, for me, the biggest compliment I ever received was when in 2006, I worked day and night and we put in our blood, sweat and tears into restoring the convocation hall. A fabulous Victorian neo-Gothic building designed by Sir Gilbert Scott himself in Bombay. And uh, at the inauguration, when the project was restored, it was inaugurated by uh, the president of India. And I was introduced to him as the architect who had led the restoration. And he said just one simple sentence. He said, your building smiles. And I think that's the most beautiful thing that anyone could have said. And that is the biggest joy. If you walk into a building that you have restored and you know that, you know, there's joy in it, that is a word itself. That's really beautiful, Abha. Abha, will Abha Narayan Lamba ever retire? I hope not to. I hope to die with my boots on <laughs> because I really wouldn't know what to do with retirement life. So, uh, yeah, hopefully not. So therefore, the answer to what's work-life balance for you and what does Abha Narayan Lamba do when she's not working? How are you going to answer that question? If I had to define myself, I would define myself as an Indian architect and a woman. But then it all, for me, coalesces into the fact that, yes, I'm an Indian, yes, I'm a woman, and yes, I'm an architect. But for me, my work and my personality can't be divided into two different silos. They are the same thing. I'm as much a woman as I am an architect. I'm as much a mother as I am an architect. Uh, I'm as much a professional as I love to do things. If I had a holiday, I'd still grab a camera and head to a cultural destination and spend time happily walking through some ruins in some part of the world. And if I get paid to do exactly that, why would I do anything else? 
So you basically make sure that wherever you travel, the architect hat stays on. There's no taking off that hat. Absolutely. Beautiful. Abba, you know, when I started Atlanta Diaries, you know that I sort of really wanted this to be a platform where you're able to, you know, share your experiences so that you can motivate younger women or people in the younger generation to find their own greatness. So any parting thoughts on how people can find their greatness or as they transition? I would just say, you know, never try and fit into a mold that someone else has made for you. I couldn't cook to save my life when I got married. And after 22 years of marriage, when I did get divorced, I don't think still I was much of a cook. But then if you know you're not a good cook and you can live off cheese toasts or <laughs> order in and you're happy, so be it. I mean, as long as you know what you really enjoy, there's no good mother and bad mother. There's always a first time that you become a mother. You wing it. You try your best, you fumble along the way. It's the same thing with being a wife. It's the same thing with being a daughter. It's the same thing with being a professional. We all try to do our best. Sometimes we are brilliant at what we do and sometimes we make mistakes. As long as we have the right intention and we want to give it our best with sincerity, it's all right. And if we can't manage everything, I think we shouldn't be harsh on ourselves and accept that we don't have to be great with everything and be kind to ourselves and say, maybe I'm not so good with this, but hey, I enjoy doing that and let me explore that. So it's our one life on the planet. We've got a few years. Let's just make the most of it to the best of our ability. And that's it. That's lovely. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people and resonate with a lot of people. So thank you again for doing this, Abba. Thank you for taking out time. Thank you for bullying me into this. <laughs> thank you very much for listening. All my guests have brought their most vulnerable selves on Atlanta Diaries. And even if a small segment of these conversations can help champion the journey of one person, it's going to be really worth it. I do have a request for you. Please share this podcast on your social media and with your family and friends. Our society is constantly evolving and Atlanta Diaries must too. I really appreciate if you can leave your feedback in the form of a review or a rating. These are impactful and rousing stories that need to be shared far and wide. See you next time for another one on Atlanta Diaries.